I think one of the most important things Biden has done is send a very strong message about uh, taking care in not getting COVID. Uh, I think if he were to get COVID, it would send a totally different message. When he's trying to send the message, wear a mask, be socially distant, be careful in who you spend time with and how you spend time with them, uh, for him to get COVID would say that that doesn't all work. So. Part of their schedule is uh, they're trying to do small events. They're doing fewer events. They're traveling less. Large events, travel, et cetera. The more people you're exposed to, the more likely you are to get COVID. I do think that there will be a greater appreciation for um, preserving, protecting, advancing um, our ability to innovate now and in the future. But I think it also is going to probably put a little more pressure um, on that side of the debate where the annualized price increases on products that have been marketed for a while, um, you know, that is likely to be where both sides of the aisle say something's got to give. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Welcome to our special edition 2020 Biotech Votes edition of the podcast. We're previewing the COVID election. Despite the pandemic, voter enthusiasm is high and a big turnout is expected. With me today to help break it down is veteran Democratic strategist Steve Elmendorf. He's a former chief of staff to Dick Gephardt and served as deputy campaign manager during John Kerry's presidential run in 2004. And we have Republican strategist and health policy expert Ray Downs, a former senior legislative official at Health and Human Services and a former top health aide to Senator Mike Enzi on the HELP Committee. Steve and Ray, welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks. Good to be here. Yes. Thanks, Michelle. One of the media's themes heading into the home stretch is, can the president defy the polls again? However, Trump was only down three points to Hillary, and she won the national popular vote by two points, so the polls weren't that off. It was the president's surprising performance in the Rust Belt that won him the Electoral College in 2016, but in 2020, some national polls have Biden up by double digits just a few days before America votes. With the post office being politicized and slowing down this year's vote, some say it will take some kind of election malfeasance for Trump to win, given his deficit in the polls. But others say not so fast. He's still within striking distance in Pennsylvania, and he can lose the popular vote and still pull off another inside straight. Can you break down the presidential race as you see it heading into this Halloween weekend? Let's start with Steve. Well, I think it's really important to always remember that 2020 is not 2016. There's a tendency for people to always go back to the last fight. And it's a very different election. It's a very different election because Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden is a lot more popular than Hillary Clinton was. Hillary Clinton was my friend and I spent a lot of time with her and I, I was for her for president. But Joe Biden is just a lot more popular than she was, is uh, and Donald Trump is the incumbent, not the challenger now. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. So it's a very different election. I'd rather be Joe Biden right now than be Donald Trump. Joe Biden has a has a consistent lead that he's had since almost the summer. And, and really nothing has changed. All the big events you expect in a campaign to change things, a convention, a picking a vice president, 
a debate. None of it has changed. Joe Biden has had just a seven, eight to 10 point lead consistently. And Donald Trump has been underwater in terms of his favorability consistently. And um, I think people's minds are pretty made up. A lot of people have voted. Uh, there's a lot more ways for Joe Biden to get the 270 than there is for Donald Trump. You know, there can always be surprises. And, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic, and that makes a lot of the predictions about turnout a little harder to figure out. But so what we know so far is there's an intense enthusiasm to go vote. And I would argue more of it is on the Democratic side. So, I, again, I'd rather be Joe Biden than Donald Trump going into the final weekend. And I think you cannot underestimate the impact of COVID. I think COVID is, you know, it's the issue. Uh, and I think, frankly, Donald Trump is in exactly the wrong place for where a lot of the undecided and swing voters want to be. COVID denialism is really not the message that they want to hear. Big rallies are not what they want to see. And I think Biden has handled that part very well. I think people want to know that they're going to get a leader who has a plan, who's going to recognize the seriousness of this and going to help them get out of it, not just say it's not happening. How do you see it, Ray? Is it a foregone conclusion from the Republican side of the House? You know, you never say never. I do think 2020 is different than 2016. I think the outsider candidacy um, that President Trump ran in 2016 clearly cannot be duplicated again this go round. And COVID is is not something he is doing well on, quite frankly, in some of our key swing states. I would say among Republican registered voters, he's still at over 80 percent relative to his handling of the pandemic. So I think the enthusiasm among the Trump base has not dissipated. And I think they're less vocal about it, but I think we will see that show up in person on election day. I think the practical matter is, are there enough people who are part of that enthusiastic Trump base relative to those who are coming you know, to vote for Joe Biden, and frankly, relative to those who have already voted for Joe Biden in early and mail-in balloting? So there's no question that we are running behind from a Republican perspective, but I also think because there is a pandemic, because you know, in-person voting is probably going to favor Republicans versus Democrats. We really have to see where things land on election day or, or shortly after election day. In every election, we've got our October surprise. This year, it was the president himself coming down with COVID-19 after spending the year ignoring and thumbing his nose at public health experts. Then the president notably took a high dose of steroids and an experimental antibody cocktail from Regeneron, checked himself out of the hospital in three days and returned to the White House maskless and, and maybe contagious. Meanwhile, pandemic fatigue has set in across the country. Red states in particular are fully reopening to predictably tragic results. And COVID is spiking across the country worse than the initial peak or even the second peak. This is sending local health officials and hospital administrators, even Dr. Fauci, into something of a panic. You could drive right now from Canada to Mexico without ever leaving a COVID hotspot. Ray, can you start us off by talking about this year's October surprise and what effect you think these outbreaks will have on the outcome? No question that it is it is not a net positive for the president um, or, frankly, for down-ballot Republicans that, that we are seeing another, based on the science, predictable spike in the spread of the COVID virus. There was some hope and expectation, I think, amongst the Trump campaign that there would be a sympathy, empathy kind of situation that arose with the president and his family having tested positive. Um, 
you know, we have not seen that occur in the polls, but I also think we haven't seen it change much, um, you know, from before his infection, even from the debates. It's just been a pretty static situation in terms of the polling. So, um, you know, it's interesting. The disapproval ratings for the president are obviously quite high nationally. But again, going back to just understanding the turnout on Election Day, um, his approval rating does remain very high, as I said, in the 80s. Um, it's frankly in the 30s for independent voters, which not clear that that would be enough at the end of the day in some of these swing states. He beat Hillary Clinton basically in 2016 by 77,000 votes. Where he stands with particularly independent voters really does matter. Steve, what do you think? Uh, well, I think the real October surprise, it's not really a surprise, is the third wave is is the increase in cases. And I think that uh, Donald Trump being diagnosed was a symbol of that. But I think what's more important and impactful on the election is you know, if you look at the New York Times uh, website every morning, the map they have, the states that are most orange, uh, many of them are swing states. Uh, you know, ground zero right now for the third wave is Wisconsin. And I don't think it's any surprise that Wisconsin seems to be slipping away from Donald Trump. I think the more cases that come in some of these states, uh, there's a correlation to Trump's um favorability goes down because people are living with the outcome. And I think particularly with with two groups of voters, I think senior citizens, uh, you know, Donald Trump is doing worse with senior citizens than he did four years ago. And I think a huge part of that is COVID. I think, you know, frankly, senior citizens are at greater risk and they don't want to die. And they and they see firsthand more of the of the cases. I think women fairly or unfairly end up being being both caregivers and child caregivers. And uh, as we know, the pandemic has disrupted a lot of women's lives with school aged children who are trying to figure out how to either not go to work or work at home with their kids homeschooling. And I think that's part of Trump's problem with women. Um, so I think that has has the third wave has been pretty devastating to Trump in terms of where it is and the groups of voters who are being impacted with covid. You know, it's almost a bit surprising that the White House didn't consider at least a COVID strategy for some of these very important constituencies like seniors, like suburban moms, you know, some mitigation strategy or testing strategy just to show those important voters that you care. Do either of you have any sense as to why that was not considered or maybe it was and just not chosen? So I think they feel as though they promoted a strategy uniquely to address both of those subpopulations that we mentioned. Obviously, seniors, they had a significant nursing home initiative, a testing initiative relative to um, trying to get control over what ended up being just a horrible, tragic situation early on in the pandemic in nursing homes with the death rate. I think they feel as though some of the, the you know, standards um, that they put forward in terms of protocols for shutdown and reopening did try to treat seniors as the most vulnerable population intended to be protected. A lot of that candidly was undermined by some of the commentary inconsistent with those recommendations coming from the president himself. And then with suburban moms, it's an interesting perspective that they bring to that group. But I think the notion of trying to reopen schools was viewed by folks within the campaign in the White House as a way to respond to the frustration and the demands placed on um, a lot of folks living in the suburbs. I just don't know that they are drawing from the same 
you know, perhaps facts and reality um, as folks, you know, outside of the White House or outside of sort of the Trump bubble. So they would argue they had put forward ideas and enacted policies that would address concerns raised by these groups. But I think we're seeing play out in, in the election run up um, the fact that those policies potentially missed the mark. So given Chief of Staff Mark Meadows comment last week that coronavirus is too contagious to try to control, at least until a vaccine is ready. Ray, can you talk a little bit about what our pandemic response might look like next year under a second Trump administration versus a Biden administration? I think the Meadows comments um, are delivered in a way that is is unvarnished, um, but pretty reflective of, of what they have been investing in towards responding to the pandemic you know, from fairly early on, this Operation Warp Speed exercise, which, you know, taken in isolation, I think, delivered on some pretty significant, impressive accomplishments on the scientific and development side. I think, unfortunately, it was at the expense of doing other things that could have perhaps mitigated, um, certainly addressed the mortality rate, but even mitigated the spread of the virus. Um, But I think they have set their sights on a vaccine as, you know, closer to a silver bullet than anything else that could have been done. I think, you know, the mask mandate um, is something that the president was never going to be comfortable with. And that remains clear as we head into Election Day. So I think we probably wouldn't see a terribly different reset coming from the administration. I think what we might see is a little bit of what they have um, put forward, even over the course of just the last few days, that candidly is, is unlikely to create any traction with voters. Well, I think both sides agree that a vaccine had always been a very important part of recovering from this pandemic. But Steve, now we're facing five Democratic governors who have put in place secondary review of any potential COVID vaccine, basically duplicating the work of FDA. Is this just election season politics or is this something you see going forward? Well, I don't see it going forward if Joe Biden gets elected president. If Joe Biden is president, there are a couple of big things that are going to change. Obviously, he starts, as Donald Trump uh, criticizes him for repeatedly, with 47 years in the government. And and his administration, they begin with the notion that the government is a good thing and its role is very important, particularly in a situation like this. They second begin with the idea that science and expertise is really important. They will come up with a plan and they will communicate the plan constantly, creatively, and consistently about what is our plan to deal with the virus? What is our plan to deal with the vaccine? What is our plan to deal with everything related to COVID? And I, and I think that's going to be a really important change. I think they, you know, I think working with governors and Biden has talked about this is going to be a huge part of this because he knows he can't just say we're going to have a national mask mandate, for instance. He knows they're going to have to say, I think everybody should wear a mask and I'm going to spend time every day talking to governors and mayors and local officials and encourage everybody to do that and set up local initiatives to make people wear masks. And I think on the vaccine, they'll do the same thing. I think the governors will will once they see that there is there are serious professionals in charge of the FDA, the uh, CDC, potentially a COVID uh, czar in the White House who's who's running all of this, an HHS secretary, um, all of whom are working together and communicating on a daily basis the same message, and particularly on a vaccine, which is going to require enormous communication and work to to convince people to take it. Um, I think that you'll see the the sort of one-off uh, efforts coming from states will will be subsumed into a, 
a serious federal government effort that's consistently communicated to the American people. You know, the Democrats have a long history of of supporting scientists and yet not always supporting the industry that brings those scientific innovations to patients. How would you see a Biden administration um, in terms of supporting innovation going forward, drug prices, healthcare coverage, access to medicine? Will he listen to the populist left or continue the Obama legacy of preserving our free market ecosystem and really stimulating those innovations coming to market? That's an excellent question. And I think at the moment, it's probably an unknown. I think, you know, Joe Biden becomes president as someone who worked obviously with Barack Obama passing Obamacare. But if you look at his career in the Senate, he was not someone who got up every morning and spent a lot of time on health care. You know, his time was spent on other committees, judiciary and foreign relations. He was not in the middle of all the health care fights. He is going to be, you know, he's going to have a couple goals when he gets there in terms of health care. It's clearly um, Obamacare, the ACA is is job one to make sure it is it is fixed the extent it needs to be fixed it is rooted into a place where it will not be able to be repealed they hope and the question will be in what sake do they do that right off the bat as part of their covid plan or do they do that later on in the year but i think that's where their focus will be on health care and i think the you know the, the the overall fight between the populist left and sort of the the more moderate joe biden is an un, is an unknown right now. I, I personally, if you listen to Joe Biden in his recent speeches and his debates, I think he's made it very clear. He said quite directly, I, you know, I beat them. Right. I am not a socialist. I beat the socialists in the primary. I'm going to have a different point of view. I don't think it's it's clear, though, on which issues will he you know, give them a win on because he has other issues that are more important. I think sort of the sequencing and the and the priority setting is is not clear. Drug pricing is clearly going to be part of that healthcare conversation around the ACA. It's too soon to tell how he's going to negotiate that out. It's not just about the president, right? The Senate is also re- hanging in the balance when it comes to this election. Ray, what Senate races do the Republicans view as a must win to keep their majority? It's deceiving. It's a 53-47 margin right now in the Senate with with the Republican majority. But there is one seat on the Democratic side, um, Alabama, which I think is is virtually a lock in terms of a pickup for Republicans. Doug Jones, frankly, is a fantastic guy who does a lot in the bipartisan column, but it is a pretty red state. And so I think the expectation is that that seat will for sure flip back to Republicans. So For Democrats to pick up control of the Senate, they need to pick up four seats, plus have the White House to have that 50-50 margin. And obviously, if if President Trump pulls out a victory next week, um, you know, Democrats would have to flip five seats in order to take back the majority. And I think we've all been watching the same four seats for quite some time, North Carolina, Maine, Colorado, Arizona, although Arizona is tightening up a little bit, and that's a very key state from a presidential swing perspective as well. But there are four seats right there that I think if the election were today, it probably flipped to Democrats. So then it becomes a question of what is that wall um, that they need to protect, um, you know, the majority. And I think states like Montana um, have been very much in focus for Republicans. South Carolina with Lindsey Graham, um, tremendous um, battle there in a state that is very traditionally red, um, but obviously transitioning as we've seen other states do. Um, interestingly enough, Iowa um, is a very transitioning state as well. Um, and then Georgia, which is is interesting for a variety of reasons, obviously tremendous focus um, 
on the Democratic side relative to get out the vote um, and voter registration efforts. We've seen Democrats make real runs at pretty deep red um, seats there over the last couple of cycles. And I think that's only increasing in terms of their competitiveness in 2020. But there's also two seats currently held by Republicans that are up. If someone does not get 50% of the vote on the ballot on election day, then there's an automatic runoff. In this case, it would be in early January um, for the top two vote getters. So I think we assume that both of those Georgia seats will go to a runoff in January. The value proposition is for both sides um, in, I would assume, heavily investing in those runoff races in early January for the Georgia seats. And then the last one I would love to mention, just because it's sort of under the radar screen right now, but that is Kansas. Um, you know, that has been a very interesting state for Republicans and Democrats. We have had some um, misfires in terms of candidates we've put up there. I think the candidate who's running now um, is as solid as we could come up with from a primary perspective. And I think he's expected to win, but it could be just by a couple of points. And that's significant um, in a state that, again, has been pretty ruby red for a long time. So, um, Montana, Iowa, South Carolina, the Georgia seats, and Kansas are all um, must-win seats for Republicans. So let me ask both of you about how both parties are thinking about um, biopharma these days. The biopharma industry has launched 800 projects this year to design medicines to beat, treat, or prevent COVID. Yet politicians on both sides of the aisle are still running ads against the industry does this surprise you? Do you think the industry's reputation will change once vaccines are approved and the country feels safe again? The potential for vaccines are an enormous opportunity for the industry. And in a way that, that I haven't, you know, in my career in, in government and politics, I haven't seen to, to get a message directly to people that impacts their lives. There are always lots of examples of drugs that have been developed over the last 30 years that are important. But they tend to obviously, you know, impact one particular disease or one particular group. It, there's really been nothing that's been quite this, in my mind, this broad and deep of an impact potentially. And I think the story that can be told about how the industry worked, hopefully, to get this done successfully is going to be a really important story and can hopefully help change that view. I think, you know, we have to get ourselves out of the um, the pure prism of price where the only thing people think about is, yes, I like that drug, but I'm paying too much for it, into a mindset of that drug, that series of drugs helped save the country from this economic calamity. I think this is a really important moment for the, for the industry, and I hope can change people's you know, fundamental views of it. I love that. Ray, how do you see it? How can the industry reset their perception with the Republican side of, of this town? You know, the work that's happened, um, the pure innovation on the vaccine side, the continued ongoing innovation on, on the therapeutic side has really sharpened the focus, right, as we move forward. What is innovation? And I think it will, you know, be helpful, but I think also have, um, you know, a, a real consequence of, of, you know, to Steve's point, understanding what is the value proposition um, on pricing, particularly pricing for older medicines. But I do think that there will be a greater appreciation for um, preserving, protecting, advancing um, our ability to innovate now and in the future. But I think it also is going to probably put a little more pressure um, on that side of the debate where the annualized price increases on products that have been marketed for a while, um, you know, that is likely to be where both sides of the aisle say something's got to give. So if Republicans lose control of the Senate, will they work with Democrats on anything? And 
Will it even matter if they won't? I think there's no doubt that there will be issue areas where it is extremely logical and in their own best interest um, to be working across the aisle, even if the Republicans are in the minority in the Senate. One of the you know sort of bumper stickers that Republicans have used in this cycle is that if they lose control of the Senate, then Democrats will change the rules, potentially add seats to the Supreme Court, but also, frankly, more um, meaningful, I think, um, adjust the filibuster rules so that even legislation can pass with a simple majority of 50 votes versus the current requirement in the Senate that it that it have 60 votes to move forward. So I think in order to stave off that, you know, that black and white um, decision tree for Democrats, if they're in control, there will be a number of Republicans on the moderate side, although candidly, if if they've lost control of the Senate, that means a number of moderate Republicans have lost their seats. Um, but I think there will be members who encourage the leader um, to work across the aisle, to be bipartisan, to go to the table, so that that question isn't called um, too soon next year, if it's called at all. But, uh, you know, the minority mindset is to block and tackle and you know, be obstructionist. That's true of both sides, and it has been for a while. But I think the stakes are quite high if Republicans find themselves in the minority. And I do think there will be areas. Similarly, some change afoot. Uh, Lamar Alexander, a longtime uh, collaborator with the industry, is retiring. And it is not clear yet who will assume the reins at the top of the Republican side of the dais at the HELP Committee. Um, we have a couple of, of varied candidates in the mix right now, whether it's Richard Burr from North Carolina, possibly Rand Paul from Kentucky. So very different outcomes depending on, on where that situation winds up. So, Steve, you're a presidential campaign veteran. You know how much money and message matters in the home stretch, And we are now quite literally in the home stretch. Which candidate had the advantage and resources to drive its voters to the poll in this critical last moment? Well, surprisingly, the Democrats at both the uh, presidential and the Senate level and the House level have an enormous financial advantage, which is not how it usually works. I think it's a sign of the enthusiasm uh, that they have from people who, frankly, want to get rid of Donald Trump. The financial advantage is really, like, mind-blowing. I looked at the other day. When I looked at how much money each candidate had in the bank, how much money Joe Biden has to spend in the last 20 days of this campaign, and it's $700 million. And it's it's just, it's like, it's hard to figure out how to spend that much money. Obviously, you'd want to own it, be in the TV station business or the radio station business, because there's going to be a lot of ads and a lot of other things they're going to spend money on. It's been a big advantage. And if you look at our Senate races, it's even more stark in a lot of the races. Jamie Harrison against Lindsey Graham in a race that we may or may not be able to win, but Jamie Harrison will have raised more money in the history than any person ever has in the history of running for the Senate in one race. So it's it's just, uh, you know, again, I think it's a sign of enthusiasm. I think the question for Democrats will be as we go forward, is this a permanent is this a permanent fixture? Is this also a sign of the fact that we've made such strides among college educated voters in the suburbs who have more money and are more willing to give it and who used to be Republicans and are now becoming Democrats? Um, I think it'll be very interesting when Donald Trump is off the stage. Hopefully he gets off the stage from our perspective and stays off the stage. Will that financial advantage continue? Will that energy continue or will we return to a, a previous era when the Republicans always had a financial advantage? So since this podcast is going to first air on Monday morning, this is quite literally Monday morning quarterbacking. But I've heard some Democrats fret that Biden's homestretch campaign schedule is not as vigorous as President Trump's has been. 
In addition, Biden and Harris are going to places like Georgia and Texas, leading to fears of overconfidence. Should Biden have personally campaigned harder to close it out and focused exclusively on must-have states? I think one of the most important things Biden has done is send a very strong message about uh, taking care in not getting COVID. Uh, I think if he were to get COVID, it would send a totally different message. When he's trying to send the message, wear a mask, be socially distant, be careful in who you spend time with and how you spend time with them. Uh, for him to get COVID would say that that doesn't all work. So part of their schedule is uh, they're trying to do small events. They're doing fewer events. They're traveling less. Large events, travel, et cetera, the more people you're exposed to, the more likely you are to get COVID. So I think it's it's a strategic decision that's about making sure that they send that strong message about how you should act in a public health crisis. You know, I, there's always people who second guess this sort of thing about where you go and where you don't go. And, you know, it's hard to second guess the Biden campaign when when two years ago, when this all started, everybody thought he had very little chance. Uh, and they basically have have executed a plan with rigor, um, with consistency that has him on the verge of getting elected president of the United States. So I have a hard time second guessing their strategic decisions. I think they made the right decision here. You know, one of the reasons he went to Georgia, besides the symbolism of wanting to go to Warm Springs and having a message that was built around FDR and his polio and recovery, is uh, we have two Senate races there. And Joe Biden uh, wants to win the presidency. And when he wins the presidency, he wants to be able to do things. And the more he can help the Democratic Party control more bodies of legislators to help him, the better off he'll be. I think split ticket voting is something that folks are probably thinking about. I know we're thinking about it in the Senate races um, relative to someone who would vote for Biden, but still comfortably vote for Republicans down ballot. So, you know, I hate to speak to a lack of or an overconfidence on the part of Biden. I mean, we're spending time on the Trump side in states where it's ridiculous that he would have to spend time in a place like Montana a week or two out from the election. So the state of the economy and how voters feel about it is always another important indicator of whether a, a challenger might be poised to oust an incumbent. Steve, where is public opinion on the issue of the economy on the eve of this election? You know, it's interesting. You know, we have the famous James Carville line. It's the economy stupid from the 92 Clinton campaign. Uh, to encourage everybody to always go back to the economy. And that, you know, is political history. I think this race is very, very different because of COVID. I, I would say in this race, the sign on the wall should be it's COVID stupid. The, the one polling number that always gives Democrats pause over the last two years is that Donald Trump continues to have an advantage on the economy. Even in the face of the economic collapse caused by COVID, he still has an advantage of being better able to manage the economy. Biden has closed that gap somewhat, but he hasn't closed it completely. So, uh, but I think public opinion is Trump may be better on the economy, but we're not going to get to that better economy unless we deal with the COVID issue. And Biden has a, a huge advantage on dealing with COVID. And I think that uh, in this case, I hesitate to use the word, but in this case, COVID trumps the economy. Hmm. Okay, so it's prediction time, lightning round. Let's take these one at a time to each of you. Who wins the White House? I think Biden wins the White House. Um, I don't think it's a landslide, but I do think he decisively wins the White House. All right. And Steve? Biden wins the White House by a lot. And we find and we know on election night. All right. That was going to be my follow up question. So, Ray, what date will we know who wins the White House in your prediction? I think we will know early next week, too. Um, I, I have heard that Michigan might take a little while to to conclude their count, um, but I think it is next week. 
All right. Okay, who controls the Senate next year, Steve? Uh, The Democrats control the Senate. Right. I still, um, and maybe I'm glass half full, I still have a sense that Republicans could hold on, but it will be a very slim, a slim margin. Okay. So by your estimation, then the filibuster will survive, yes? Under that scenario, yes. And Steve? That I, I'm really 50-50 on that. I know 50-50 is a cop-out, but I, I think you start out with a president who's after 40 years in the Senate does not want to get rid of the filibuster, um, but you're going to have enormous pressure from the base of the party. If we cannot, if we can't deliver for the base of the party on a bunch of issues, including health care, climate, immigration, uh, gun safety, then the filibuster is going to go away. And delivering uh, on all those things is hard. Uh, but I think they're going to try to not get rid of the filibuster. Okay. So one last odd lightning round question. I asked this to Charlie Cook the other day as well. So given the mobility that we've seen spurred by COVID and the flexibility that we're seeing with working uh, remotely, does COVID change our electoral map going forward? Good question. I think no. I, I don't think we've seen that much movement in where voters are registered, but you know, we'll have to really see how long the pandemic lasts and and if the remote working um, persists um, at this level after the pandemic. But I, I think right now it's hard to imagine it has that big of an impact. And Steve? Yeah, as I think about it, I tend to agree. It won't, you know, I think people may leave a Washington, D.C. or leave a New York or a San Francisco and go to a suburban area or go to an exurban area. Um, but I don't think they're going to leave those big cities in blue states and go to South Dakota. Um, I don't think they're going to go to North Dakota. I don't think they're going to go to Alabama. I, I think the shifts will be more people leaving big cities and going within those states to, to other places, but not going you know, to red America to, to start afresh. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Really appreciate the insights. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you've learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To get last minute voting updates and information about where to go to vote, please visit bio.org slash vote. Next week, we'll be back with BIO's head of federal and state government relations to break down the results and what it all means. We'll recap the COVID election and look ahead to 2021 next Monday on I Am BIO.